Amen. Good morning and welcome to Awaken Church. That was really cool. The spoken word actually written by our own Stephen Freeman, which is quite amazing. I want to welcome you here on Easter Sunday, and I'm excited for the chance that we have to experience God in all of the different creative ways that we get to be able to worship Him. If it's your first time here or you haven't been here in a while, my name is Frank. I am one of the pastors here at Awaken Church of this irreverent group here. And over the course of the past few weeks, we as a church have been taking a journey backwards in time to take a deeper look at the story of an ancient church, a, store, a church in a city called Philippi. And what my co-pastor Andrew has done is kind of taken us back 2,000 years in time into the past. And it's been an interesting journey so far. But if we're to be perfectly honest, there are a good number of us in this room that really don't enjoy history. In fact, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we find that we've got enough trouble in our present, and whatever leftover time we have from our present is spent thinking about investing in and planning for the future. We don't have time for ancient history, is what we tend to think. And if we were to be perfectly honest, we really don't believe we have all that much to learn, especially from the ancient past. It doesn't have a lot to do with our lives today. And we would be wrong. This uh, couple of days ago, Friday night, my family went to see Shazam. So no spoilers this morning for you all, but our family loves superhero movies. And one of the things that we really enjoy about superhero movies are the Easter eggs. Do you all know what Easter eggs are? Not the plastic Easter eggs that we're, our kids are going to get a whole bunch of today with candy inside. Easter eggs in movies and video games are just like, uh, it's a different thing, right? It's uh, those small insider moments where some message is shared, some clue is offered, some joke is told that you don't get unless you're willing to go deeper into the game, unless you're willing to go deeper into the movie and into the story, unless you have some insider knowledge of the background and the backstory itself. And what we've done over the course of the series that we've entitled Undercover Church is that we're offering small insider moments, right, to kind of take a deeper look at this church of Philippi and look for those Easter eggs that bring this story to life in our present-day faith, in our present-day context. And so what I want to do is I want to take a few moments to cover the ground that we've traveled over the course of the past few weeks, and then we're going to dive into this morning. So the church we're studying is the ancient church located in the city of Philippi. Most of you are probably thinking, I have no idea where Philippi is or was. Um, but Philippi is actually found in the country of Greece, up in the northeastern corner. It's a church the apostle Paul is writing to in the letter of Philippians in the New Testament, if that's a more familiar term. Uh, in the days of Jesus, in the days of the early church, it was a large uh, strategic urban colony of the Roman Empire, and it was populated with both Romans and Greeks. It was located near a port called Neapolis, and one of the interesting things about the city of Philippi was that even though it was a Roman colony where the official language was Latin, most of the people there spoke 
Greek. So Philippi would have been a lot like the city of Miami, right? A large city near water and a place that predominantly speaks Spanish, even though English is the official language of the country. It was also a city where, like many other Roman colonies, worshipped a lot of different gods. So when the Apostle Paul arrives in the city of Philippi, being the first European city where he's sharing the gospel, what he finds is there's an openness to the idea of Jesus, to the idea of Christianity, but a, re a resistance to Christianity's claims of exclusiveness. In other words, we're okay with you coming into our city and talking about your God. Just stop talking about him as being the only God in the only way, because that's offensive to us. Again, not all that different from the culture that we live in today. So when Paul arrives at Philippi, what he finds is that the most receptive group to the message of the gospel is actually a group of women. Surprise, surprise, women are a bit more willing to listen than the guys were, right? And so uh, they listen to the gospel story, they contemplate and consider it, and then a number of them become believers. In particular, a uh, wealthy and influential woman named Lydia. And not only does she get saved, but her whole family becomes believers, and she invites this young group, this newly formed group of believers to meet and gather in her home and to use that as a meeting place for the first church there in the city of Philippi. And that's where we've been over the course of the past few weeks, focusing on the story of this ancient church in an early time, 2,000 years ago, but in a context that really doesn't look all that different from what we're familiar with today. So time passes, the church is established, and Paul has moved on out of the city of Philippi to start planting other churches. But he hasn't left this church alone. There are still significant leaders here, influential leaders here, including Lydia, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and even the Dr. Luke are, have been a part of helping this church, nurture this church, and get it off the ground but then these other groups start coming to the city of Philippi as well, talking about Jesus in the city. And among them is a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are a group of people that are coming in and saying, in addition to believing the right things about God, if you want to be a true follower of God, you must not only believe in him, but you must follow the Jewish customs and follow the Jewish laws. In other words, it's not just about believing the right things. You also have to do the right things if you wish to be saved. And again, not a crazy idea in our cultural context. Even today, we have a lot of people, even Christians, who believe this, that if you want to have a relationship with God, it is not simply about what you believe, but it's about what you do. That if you want to have a relationship with God, you can't just believe the right things. You have to be a good person. And that's what the Judaizers believe. And what Paul said and does in writing this letter to this church at Philippi, the letter called the letter of Philippians in our Bible, is he's writing to tell them that what these Judaizers are preaching is wrong. So we'll pick up the story in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And he says, watch out for those dogs. 
those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved, which was a part of their law. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So what Paul is doing in starting off this section of his letter is he's saying that it's not our resume that gets us into a relationship with God. And then he follows up by saying, you know, I bet there are some of you who are thinking, well, Paul is saying that because he doesn't have much of a resume. Well, you're wrong. And that's why he goes through his qualifications. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am a pure-blooded Jew, and I was part of the most elite, law-abiding group on the planet, the Pharisees. I obeyed the law without fault throughout my life, And I did my duty in trying to stamp out these Christians when they started teaching that faith in Jesus is what's necessary to have a relationship with God. Because I thought that was blasphemous. And what the law told us to do with blasphemous people is to kill them. And so that's what I participated in until I was shown by God that I was wrong. And not only was I wrong, but God showed me that everything I had built my life upon, developing this impressive resume, was not worth boasting about at all. In fact, it was worthless. Verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Paul came to realize that all of his good works were not good enough. That good works do not necessarily make you a good man. In fact, oftentimes it just makes you a proud one. And Paul realized that for all of us, we have a broken relationship with God because we have sinned. And what is sin? Sin is any time we fall short of God's perfect standard. Any time that we move against the character and nature of God, that is when we sin. And the way to restore that broken relationship that we broke because of our sin cannot be simply to try harder, because no matter how hard we try, it's not going to be good enough. Instead, what God shares, right, or what we've found is that uh, only two things can restore our relationship with God. 
The first is to go back in time and never sin, which none of us can do because we're not Dr. Strange, or actually it's Thanos who has it now, right? We don't have the time stone. We can't rewind it and go back in time and have never sinned. So that's not really a viable option, sadly. So that leaves us the second option. And that second option is that God makes a way. And that's what God has done through Jesus Christ, his son. And he says, this is the way to restore this broken relationship between us, that you put your faith in the work of my son through Jesus. So I don't know how much uh, all of you follow the news. Um, I'm assuming that not everyone in here does. But for those of you who do, uh, you might have realized that the Mueller report was released this past week, or a redacted version of it anyway. And for those of you who don't know what the Mueller report is, it's a 400-page report on the findings of investigator Robert Mueller into Russia's involvement in the 2016 presidential election. And what has made this such a charged issue is the investigation also looked into whether or not our president, President Trump, was involved or worked with the Russians on that act. I'm not sharing this because I want to get political in any way, shape, or form. I have no interest in that. But I do want you to understand what was at the heart of this investigation. And what was at the heart of this investigation was to discover the facts. What really happened? And to his credit, he did. Robert Mueller did. His team did. But it hasn't made anything better. If you're a Republican, most of the Republicans are still standing behind President Trump, and they still claim that he hasn't done anything wrong, or probably more accurately, that he hasn't done anything that deserves impeachment or prosecution. That's how they, the Republicans, interpret the facts. Democrats disagree. They still believe that President Trump is guilty of collusion, is guilty of obstruction of justice, and that he should face charges, and maybe even impeachment, because that's how the Democrats are interpreting the same set of facts. And again, I don't care where you are on this. I simply want you to get the point. And the point is this, knowing the right facts often isn't enough. Knowing the right facts often isn't enough to change deeply held beliefs, and it's not enough to repair broken relationships. And that is what Paul is saying here in his letter to the church at Philippi. And what he's saying is that knowing Jesus has to be our real pursuit. Being in intimate relationship with Jesus should be the pursuit of our lives. And the way we do that is through faith and by spending time with him cultivating a relationship with him. But that's not what we tend to want to do. We tend to want to chase the right facts. We focus on our shiny little resumes. We put our trust in our accomplishments, in our good works, and we polish all these things as if we can show them to God and say, God, look how good I am. Don't I deserve to be your kid? And what Paul is saying is that's what I used to believe, and that explains what I used to do. But I was wrong. That's what these Judaizers still believe, and that's what they're teaching, and they're wrong. And church, I don't want you to fall into that trap. These things are worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ 
as Lord. If you want a relationship with the God of the universe, then this is what God says he wants of you. Believe. Put your faith in his son. Verse 9. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. I don't want you to miss this. Paul's saying righteous acts is not what makes you righteous. We become righteous through faith in Jesus. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so what, that one way or another I will experience the resurrection of the dead. This is at the heart of this message that Paul wants to share with this church in Philippi. What he writes to them in this letter of the Philippians, right, is that faith in Christ is what makes you righteous and what brings you into relationship with God. But that's only the starting point because if you want to get to know him, if you want to experience the power of God in your life, then you must share in his sufferings and experience his glory. And we all understand that. We would never say it like Paul did because he says it in a way that for us today would be very confusing. But Paul's language is from 2,000 years ago. And what he's sharing with us practically and, how, and the reason why we all get this is because what Paul is sharing is that every close relationship with we have is close because we've shared our lives with each other. We've shared good times together, and we've shared hardship together, and that is why our relationship is close. And that can be with a member of our family, that can be with a spouse, that can be with a good friend, but our closeness, the reason why we have a close relationship is not because that person's a good person or I'm a good person or because we are all in agreement on the same set of facts. The reason why we have a close, intimate relationship is because we have gone through things together, both good and bad. We've been intimate and vulnerable with one another. And what Paul is saying is it is the exact same way with a relationship with God. That knowing him begins with faith, but becomes expressed over time and more intimate over time as we go through and endure suffering with God. Then we go through hard times in our lives knowing that God is with us every step of the way. When we experience glory, or as he talks about here, as we experience resurrection, those are times where we really get to experience God too. This is how our relationship with him grows. So again, Paul says it in a way that we probably wouldn't say it today, but we all understand the concept. We all understand that because that's our experience as well. Intimacy is born out of good times and bad times we spend together. Or in Paul's words, sharing in death, experiencing resurrection. God is bigger and better than our wildest dreams. And a relationship with God is bigger and better than we can possibly imagine. And Paul says, I don't want you to miss out on this. God wants a relationship with you. It's 
So before I close out our time today, because I know that you guys are all excited about running out there with kids and finding yourselves an Easter egg and tucking one in your pocket and giving it to your kid later and say, shh, see what I picked up. You know, I know you guys all want to get to this, but there's two things I want to say before we wrap up. And I want to say two different things to two very different groups of people in this room. And the first message, the first thing I want to say is for those of you who are in this room and you feel like, I don't know if I have a relationship with God. And you're saying that not because you haven't done the right things. I mean, you've gone to church, you've been a good person, you've lived a good life, and maybe even at some point in your life, you prayed a prayer or you believed something that you thought was good. But the reason why you don't believe you have a real relationship with God is because he doesn't seem like he's real in your life. You've never experienced the reality of God in your life. And you've always thought, well, this Christian thing is all kind of hokey because I did the things they said to do and nothing. And if that's where you are, if that's where you honestly are, right, you don't have to tell me. Just in your heart, you're like, no, that's true. Then can I share something with you? Actually, I'm going to share a quick and stupid story first. But hopefully you can tolerate my quick and stupid story to get to the point. I had a friend of mine, uh, so this is a number of years ago, eons ago, when I was a college student. And uh, when I was a college student, we, uh, one of the things I loved doing was going to different conferences. And so I went to this different, one, of this, one of these conferences, and I listened to a, one of the most dynamic and incredible speakers I've ever heard in my life. And his name was Steve Bush. And uh, everybody, we all enjoyed hearing him, one of the most dynamic, creative, innovative speakers that I've ever heard. And one of the things he did was after his sermon... He did what, uh, in Christian circles, is he did a financial ask because he was going to plant a church in Germany, and he invited the churches and the, le- the pastors and the leaders and the people who were attending to join his ministry, to support his ministry team. So he had a financial ask, and it was the best financial ask I've ever heard in my life. So even as a poor college student, I was like, oh, I've got to give this, I've got to give money to this endeavor. Anyway, after Steve finished speaking, there was a break. And during that break, my friend Brandon decided I'm going to make a run to the bathroom. And so he runs to the bathroom. And a few minutes later, he comes back. And when he comes back, he has this look of of shock on his face and dismay on his face. And we're like, what just happened? He's like, I had the craziest thing happen when I went to the bathroom. So I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you a bathroom story. So he's like, I was going to the bathroom, I was waiting for a a urinal to open up, a stall to open up. And so when I finally got there, I walked up to the urinal and I realized he was right next to me and it was Steve Bush. And so I wanted to say something to him, but I was a bit starstruck and I really didn't know what to say. And then he's like, and I just decided I'm just going to go for it. And I said something. And he's like, it was absolutely silent afterwards. He didn't look at me which probably would have been awkward anyway. He didn't say anything to me, and I thought, well, that's kind of rude. And then I walked out, and after I was walking back here, I realized, oh, my gosh. I think he misheard what I said, and he was humiliated. And we're like, well, what did you say to him? And he said, um, I told him that uh, as I walked up to the stall and I looked at him over, I was like, that was a great aspect. And he was like, I think he might have heard me wrong. And because I was thinking the sermon and the financial ask, and he totally missed it. The point I want to make is, if you missed it, it's okay. The point I want to make is misunderstandings are bad. 
okay? Misunderstandings are bad. When we think we understand something and we really don't get it, that is a bad thing. And so for those of you who are here in this room and you're like, you know what? I thought I understood what this Christian thing was all about. And maybe I even went through the steps that I was given, but I haven't experienced anything different. And I don't know what it is. I don't want you to leave here today with a misunderstanding. So here's a, a card that we use for our church. It's Awaken Church. It has the, you know, our website. It's what we hand out to people if we want to give them a quick information on our church. And one of the cool things about it is not just that it's got our name and the website on it, but on the back side, we share a verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And we do so very intentionally because we wanted to give our people a quick way to be able to share what God has done for them. And basically what it says in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. And the way we want to explain this is the wage is something we all understand is what we earn. And what this passage is saying is that every time we break one of God's commands, every time we choose to go in a different direction than God, every time we choose to make ourselves the boss of our lives, we are sinning, and what we earn with that sin is death eternal separation from God. That's what death really is. It isn't just an ending of a life. It's a separation of body from soul, from spirit, from God. So what we earn, all of us, when we sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And what that means is a gift we understand is different from a wage. A gift is not something we earn. A gift is something freely given and freely received. And what God freely offers to us is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he says, I am offering this to you, and what you have to do is accept. Believe, put your faith in, and accept. But here, I want to make clear what it is that you're accepting. Your life used to be led with you as king. And what this says is it's not just the gift of eternal life. It's life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That means what you have to surrender is the idea that you still get to be king over your life and accept that Jesus is going to be king. Surrender. Repent. That's what these Christians' words are all about. It's a giving over of our lives from our control to God. And I know for some of you, some of you may be thinking, well, that's, that's a big thing. That's a big deal. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I have done that. And that sounds like an act, right? To make God king over my life. And I'm like, it's actually not because you're not making God anything. He already is, right? Whether you believe God is king or not doesn't change the fact that he is on the throne. All you're doing is saying that by putting my trust and receiving this gift, I acknowledge what is already true. God is king. Jesus is king. And I want Jesus to rule over my life. That's what salvation entails. After service, we're going to have a time where, you know, there's a group of us who want, uh, who are part of our prayer team, and we want to get a chance to pray with you. We want to get a chance to pray for you. And I realize there are probably some questions that may come of this, or maybe even some of you saying, now that I understand, no more misunderstandings, I think I might be ready to take that step. And if you are, I want to invite you. I want to challenge you to join us after service, after Larry runs through his announcements, come up here, and we would love to get a chance to talk with you, pray with you, pray for you. Amen? Second group, second thing I want to say is uh, 
for those of you who are believers and you consider yourselves to be disciples of Jesus, I want to tell you about the story of the Battle of Blue Licks. It's a battle that most of you probably haven't heard of. It's not imaginary. It's actually true. It's a battle in the Revolutionary War. And uh, what made this battle memorable, somewhat memorable, because none of you have ever heard of it, right? The Battle of Blue Licks? Okay. It took place in Kentucky. Blue Licks? Okay. So that's where they get these weird names. So anyway, uh, what made this uh, battle interesting, Daniel Boone was one of the commanders. If you remember, Daniel Boone was a man. He was a big, do you guys, okay, never mind. If you're over 40, maybe you kind of nod your head. It's like, anyway, so Daniel Boone was one of the commanders of this army. Uh, the Americans lost in this battle, but those are trivial notes. That's not why this battle is memorable. The reason why the Battle of Blue Licks is memorable as a part of the Revolutionary War is because it's considered to be the last battle of the American Revolution. It actually takes place eight months after the surrender of Cornwallis in Yorktown. And so some of you are thinking, well, why were they still fighting after Cornwallis surrendered to Washington in Yorktown? And the reason was it took a long time for the news to get out there that the battle was over, right? There was no internet back then. There was no posting, a selfie, Yahoo, we won, right? That got spread and went viral. That's just not how it worked back then. And then even when the news got there, there were some who couldn't believe it. And so they fought, and this ended up being the final battle of the Revolutionary War. And I share that story because in many ways, I think that's what Easter is all about. Easter is about being able to declare through Christ that the war is over. The enemy has been defeated. Jesus has won. Amen? We are victors. We walk in victory. We are victorious. But we still have a job to do. And our job is to proclaim to the rest of the world that the war is over. Right? Our job is to be able to walk out to the rest of the world and say, this broken relationship that we had with God has now been restored. The battle is over. The war is over. Lay down your arms and surrender to the risen king. Become a citizen of God's kingdom. Because you know what? He's the king now. And you can either choose to surrender to him or continue to resist him. We want to invite you to become a part of this new world that he has created. And that is the message we are called to proclaim because we are no longer soldiers in this war. We are ambassadors. And as ambassadors, we've been given a message to proclaim. And as Christians, for those of you who consider yourselves to be disciples of Jesus, that is part of the trust and the responsibility that has been given to us to make disciples. And what does discipleship mean? Discipleship is more than just sharing the message of good news that the war is over and that Jesus has won. Discipleship is also learning what it is to be a citizen in God's kingdom and teaching others what it means as well. That's what discipleship looks like. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul shares the charge to Christians in this way, to disciples of Jesus in this way. Uh, verse 17, 517. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who has brought us back to himself 
through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. So this is the work of God, and our task is to reconcile. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. If you are a Christian here today, if you're a disciple of Jesus here today, and you've been struggling with feeling like you have a clear sense of purpose, or you've been struggling to experience hope and joy, then I also want to invite you to come up and join us. Again, we've got a small group of us who want to pray for you. I want to invite you guys to come on up and say, you know what, I do feel a bit lost and not sure of what my Christian faith is about. I get what you're saying. It just doesn't always feel real for me. Then I want to invite you and let you know we want to come alongside you. We want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. And not only do I invite you to join us after service, after Larry's done with his announcements, I want to challenge you to do so because I don't want you to live anymore in that state of purposelessness, hopelessness, and joylessness. I don't want you to continue to miss out on all that God has for you. Amen? Don't leave here today in discouragement or futility. Jesus, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Jesus is risen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the glory and wonder of being able to celebrate your resurrection this morning. And God, I love this idea that we are to share in your death, to share in your sufferings, because that is a part of life to suffer, to feel pain, and to be able to know that our God who has given his life for us understands what pain feels like, what hurt feels like, and that we can share in that together. And also, that we can share in glory together. This is what the story of the resurrection is all about. New life, renewed hope, joy, being filled with your spirit and experiencing all that you have for us. I thank you that you tell us in your word that we have been given, for those of us who have put our trust in you, every spiritual blessing in this life. Every spiritual blessing we have because of who our Father is. And we thank you, Lord, for this new life that we have in you. And Jesus, I pray for these saints. I pray for those who are walking in victory to continue to live in victory. I pray for those who are feeling purposeless and defeated even if it's just for this season in life, I pray that they would get ministered to, that your spirit would walk alongside them, and they'd experience your love and hope. And then for those who have come this morning, praise God, but don't yet know you, don't yet have that relationship with you, God, I pray that you would humble their hearts and compel them to take that leap of faith and say, I am willing, God, to consider getting off this throne and allowing you to take it. And Lord, I pray that that would be a decision they'd make today. We love you so much. We thank you that you are always for our good. 
And thank you that you desire this relationship with us so much and so deeply. And I pray that we would not be so proud as to not respond. We love you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. And pray that you would be blessed. You would be praised. In Jesus' name.